Hello and welcome to Primary Sources, a spin-off podcast from the Doctor Who show where we take what people were saying about Doctor Who in the 80s and 90s and we riff on it. The conversation might stick closely to that primary source or it might go off on a tangent. Who knows? For this episode, I'm joined by author, Doctor Who show contributor and one half of the All in Time and Space podcast, Ian Martin. Hello, Ian. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? I'm very, very well. Uh, it's interesting. I'm in Sydney about to go to dinner. You're just getting up over there in... In London, that's right. Um, I'm I'm out stealing milk from doorsteps before people <laughs> wake up. <laughs> we'll put that milk down and let me read you three letters from Doctor Who magazine, September 1991. Oh, mm. let's kick off with by the fans for the fans. Naturally, I am delighted that DWB has been voted fanzine of the year by readers of DWM and by such a large margin too. So many thanks. Equally, I'm relieved that the results make an instant mockery of a similar dubiously run fanzine survey published somewhere recently. That DWB is a fanzine, i.e. fan magazine, is a claim I frequently staunchly defend in the face of those who would tag it a commercial or profit-making concern. Such accusations frequently arise from some prominent fans, usually envious that DWB is popular enough to allow me to enable myself to produce it on a full-time basis. After all, isn't everyone's dream to have a hobby as a full-time job? Quite frankly, DWB in its present format today, which it's held for over six years now, would be impossible to produce in anyone's spare time, and so it cannot be unreasonable to expect that I should draw a salary from it to enable it to be produced on this scale. This is the only profit the magazine derives, and the fact is that DWB costs no more pro rata than its competitors in the A4 and glossy field. There is an obvious difference between a magazine produced on this scale to one that is published by a commercial company whose main interest lies primarily with its profitability than the magazine itself. DWB is produced by the fans for the fans and its popularity stems from the fact that it is the only popular fanzine that's constantly spoken out for what it believes in even at the risk of shattering cosy relationships from whom it could otherwise have immeasurably benefited from and that I think is really what a fanzine is all about and that's from Gary Lee PO Box 1015 Brighton East Sussex Ian fanzines mm. DWB the 80s yeah I mean uh there was a lot of um, what we call accidental partridge in that letter. Um, <laughs> it was it was not the most sort of sizzlingly interesting or, or, or exciting letter I've ever heard. Um, I think I because it obviously I didn't read DWB uh, at the time we're talking right. about. I was about fifteen. I I read the magazine. You know, I fondly remembered the TV show. That was about it. And I think looking back now, now that we have Twitter, I think it's very easy to work out what the fanzine world was possibly like in that you construct an echo chamber full of people who just kind of whip each other up um, in a sort of spiralling fashion. And you get just uh, an unreadable magazine to the general public that's just full of hysterical bile and... You know, I everyone everyone knows that back in the day, JNT was kind of a loathed and despised figure by a lot of these fans. In much the same mm. way, if you look on Twitter, um, people like Boris Johnson are hated <laughs> and despised uh, with good reason. Um, and 
we, you know, we all have a field in which we are a, a, an insane maniac. Mine is is mm. kind of domestic politics. Um, back in the day, it was clearly <laughs> Doctor Who fandom, and it's wonderful that he was able to make it a full time job. But I'm not sure it's one that I would have wanted. Would you have wanted to do that all day? I don't think so. And in the end, he had to turn it into Dreamwatch Bulletin. So it sort of veered away from being about Doctor Who anyway, because Doctor Who was finishing up. What I have found interesting, and I recorded another episode of, of this show earlier today, the stuff fans were saying 30 years ago is the same as what fans say today, just through a different prism. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> you know, so the way fanzine editors were going on back then, you see that on Twitter now, just like you say. So it's it's really bizarre. It's, I mean, it's it's human nature to an extent, isn't it? People will always um, have the same kind of banal uh, opinions. I mean, 30 years ago, you think <laughs> of like Doctor Who fandom, you think of some sort of specky, spotty geek in a, in a cheap grey suit on TV. Yes. Hectoring the production team of Time of the Rani or, or the Ultimate, possibly Foe Ginger, or whatever it was. Yeah, possibly Ginger with glasses. <laughs> and thirty years later, you know, where's that fan now? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Bad. Bad example. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's just amazing how this stuff just goes around, and people, I swear, people say stuff on Twitter that they think is new and edgy, and then you go and read it in Doctor Who magazine thirty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely i mean i was just looking at twitter before we started recording and there was some some guy sort of making a really really banal observation he's like hey i watched pulp fiction for the first time in years and it's like got some really funny moments in it and he listed them and i was like yeah i, I, I knew that in 1994 when i went to the cinema and watched the film yeah, um, yeah. some people some people do regard themselves as being a lot more perhaps profound than is actually the case. Indeed. Anyway, shall we move on? Because I know what I've got next will be right up your alley. Oh. Because this was around the time that Time Worm Genesis came out. <laughs> and oh. so there, there is a bunch of feedback on Time Worm Genesis in here. And I thought I'd read at least two of them. Two shortish ones, uh, which are quite conflicting in what they have to say. So, under the title of Genesis Mixed Views, first of all, we have Doctor Who the Porn Movie. Despite the enjoyable story, I don't think Wandering Hands and Pedophilia make Genesis more adult. This is mere titillation, and for me, it summons up images of the schoolboy with a penthouse hidden behind the covers of his school exercise book. I'm sure it will improve sales, but is it Doctor Who? That's from Simon Lang from Andover. Will I go on to the second one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the second person says, on the other hand, I'd like to congratulate John Peel on an excellent start to the Time Worm story. It is both tense and humorous, to the right degree, and with great characterization, especially during Ace's rescue attempt. Shame about the Paradise Towers era, though. Still, we're none of us perfect, and I'm sure Mr. Peel will be kicking himself as soon as it's pointed out. That's Andrew Clarkson, Storbridge Dorset. Two completely different views of this book. Yeah, wow. There's, um, there's a lot to unpack there. I love the idea of someone who's read this entire novel and his only sticking point is there was a factual inaccuracy regarding Paradise Towers. 
<laughs> well, the the editor of Dwim has actually replied that Paul Cornell has had the opportunity to drop a line about the Paradise Towers era into his new adventure, so all will be explained. Well, marvellous. Mm. Oddly, yeah. this is not an element of those first four new adventures that I sort of keenly remember when I when I think back now to Genesis and indeed Revelation. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not picking up on that. So if it, if it was a a plot point or a sort of error that I bumped on at the time, I let it go because I moved on because life's too short. I have no idea what it's referring to either. <laughs> no, no. Did, have, so did you read Genesis? A long time ago, yes. Precisely. Now, what what are your abiding thoughts of it? I thought each author had a different style. And I, I was finding myself not able to get into it, partly because, and if we're, if we're talking about the new adventures broadly, I couldn't get into the new adventures at all. I'm one of those people. Oh my God, I've come yeah. on this podcast by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, obviously, I, I absolutely loved the new adventures. Um, yes. More, I suppose conceptually than actually i mean of the 61 books there are maybe 10 that that were brilliant and maybe 20 that were quite good Mm. um and there was a lot of uh there were a lot of other books published as well shall we say because um, (laughs) nobody ever sets out to write a bad doctor who new adventure novel and it would be rude after all this time to uh criticize anyone for being neil penswick um but <laughs> genesis i thought was so again you have to bear in mind i personally i was a 15 year old kid i think when when it came out and i found it really boring at the time you know i didn't know where mesopotamia was i i hadn't gone and, and lived in that part of the world at this at this juncture um nothing really happened in the book there was there was a lot of as was pointed out there was a lot of mention of of breasts and wandering hands which let me tell you was definitely uh, titillating to a 15 year old boy every time any of the characters got naked or or did the naughty I was uh, I was in seventh heaven Uh, but yeah I thought I thought it was it was quite a strong you know self-assured way to start the books but it it you know what it makes me feel like? It makes me feel like if if during the run of TV, Doctor Who, they'd kicked off a season with... I'm trying to think of a... Actually, I thought of a story in its Mask of Mandragora, which they did. But it's like, it's like starting your run, not with something kind of electrifying or spellbinding or fantastic or exciting or page-turning or compulsive or thrilling, but with something really workmanlike and plodding. Mm and Mm. methodical and dull it obviously worked in that a lot of people went on to read all of the books or at least the vast majority of them but um yeah i I suppose i I, and certainly now i would probably come down much more on the side of being being maybe more critical of the book than i than i was at the time just because i've read more and i've written Mm. more and um you know yeah <laughs> yeah no I, I get you because i i was born in 75 so how old was i when these came out this would have been maybe at what 16 or so yeah and so the the series had ended a couple of years earlier i was 16 
I was like learning to drive. I was interested in girls. And then Doctor Who popped up in novels. And I thought, well, Doctor Who isn't novels. Like, sure, there's Target novels, but that's of a TV show. Doctor Who just is a purely uh, novel-based thing uh, written in this more adult way, in quotation marks. It just wasn't for me. I just didn't get it at all. Look, now I own every new adventure. I can see them from where I'm sitting. Um, I haven't read them all, but I will one day. Uh, and I think I'll appreciate them a lot more now than I did then, even though I think that sort of pseudo-adult vibe will probably, you know, annoy me a fair bit from time to time. <laughs> but just at at the time, I just couldn't get into the idea at all that Doctor Who was even going to be novels. And I say this... Kate Orman was part of our local fan group. And it was like, Kate's oh, wow. writing a novel. Yeah, yeah, Kate's writing it. Like, she, Kate wrote fiction for our fanzines and things like this. And there's like, Kate's writing a novel. Even that didn't drag me in. That someone I personally knew had written one. That's how anti the new adventures I was at the time. I think that's a reasonable position. I mean, it, it, I didn't question it at the time because I was very much a, a, a book person there was nothing I liked more than strapping myself up against the radiator for six hours and reading a mm. book from cover to cover so the fact that Doctor Who was continuing brilliant, uh, the fact that it was in books that I had access to brilliant um, if it had been sort of resurrected by some kind of satellite TV production company in 1991 and was broadcast on something I didn't have access to, I would have been devastated so this played right into my hands and I think I think the, the new adventures have probably not aged well um, mm. in terms of there was a lot of kind of 90s references and um, pretty much every chapter title was you know live forever or Wonderwall or don't look back in anger um, <laughs> the doctor's country house you know things like that uh, which possibly which possibly now out of context won't work and will just look slightly twatty but um, mm. but Kate Orman's books, on the other hand, I think you, I think like Andrew Cartmel's War Trilogy, I think uh, Kate Orman's books transcended that kind of studenty attempt at being sort of clever and snarky and sort of uh, mm. satirical, and I think I think would absolutely stack up now. And I haven't read. I'm trying to think the last time I would have read a Kate Allman, but it would have been maybe 15 years ago now. But, um, you know, she was, she was great. Cornell was hit and miss and perhaps not as, not as awesome as he, uh, as he's (laughs) often painted. Um, a a couple of his books were great. Andrew Cartmel for me, uh, was the best because I think his writing was the least kind of artful, the least pretentious, and the most uh, sort of honest and straightforward, which made it, I think, closest to a target book or what you would have got on television in the first place. So um, I think that's that's where the range was strongest. And when it was trying to be clever and trying to be funny and arch and ironic, um, yeah, it wasn't so good. In passing, what I would say, because you, you mentioned there were some Target books you hadn't read yet. Uh, sorry, mm. some new adventures you hadn't read yet. Um, have you read Strange England? No. So, right, at the time that one came out, I thought it was the worst thing I'd ever read, and it was like the lamest idea and the most poorly written nonsense, and I was so against that one. 
And now, I think, that would probably make the best episode of New Who there's been since the Moffat era. Oh, really? So it's got... It's 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 lovely. You just need to be a grown-up when you read it, not a 15-year-old kid. Um, but dig that one out. Give it a go. I will do. Shall we move on to our third and final? Yeah, let's do that thing. Okay. This one's called Ignoring the Obvious. Regarding action, not words, you on who, Doctor Who magazine, issue 175. As a sick whiner, I wish to protest, not at being called such by Ruth Hanley, but her accusation that alleged fans like myself who complain about recent Doctor Who are the people who have damaged the program. Why do you keep watching, she asks. I can't speak for others, but I watched Doctor Who until the last millisecond of survival because I liked it. This, however, does not make me blind to Doctor Who's faults. No matter what its age, and I resent the seemingly growing attitude that criticising them makes me a non-fan, but also one of the program's assassins. Let me assure all who espouse this belief that criticising Doctor Who hasn't killed it. Those who suspended the series frequently show they aren't concerned with our views because, let's be fair, they must administer licence payers' money to the benefit of all, of which we Who fans in the UK, because the BBC considers itself not directly responsible for overseas audiences, are a microscopic minority. They also aren't so stupid they can't spot duff programs for themselves, which doesn't stop them showing them when they're popular, and which would be deceived by our unequivocal praise. If anything, the shh, you're spoiling it for everyone else tactic would convince the BBC of our philosophical immaturity and confirm their belief that we should be ignored. Besides, it's not the nostalgic screeching that's illogical, but this childish theory. Surely, if every member of the Doctor Who audience told the producer it was brilliant no matter what, we'd see any mistakes continually repeated and multiplied. I, for one, do not relish having to watch more badly paced, poor television, such as Battlefield, Ghostlight, and The Curse of Fenric. There's a big call there, by the way. Um, it is not only the right of any fan to whinge, but the duty. Whinging alone is deconstructive, but whining keeps production teams on their toes, if justifiable, and they should never be denied the carrot-on-a-stick type of praise. That's Nigel Boone from Belfast. Yeah, I'd, I'd really like to hang around with him at a party. Perhaps uh, we could get trapped together in the kitchen for three quarters of an hour and I could feel uh, my legs going numb. Um, fandom or, or the kind of devotee of absolutely anything will inherently criticise it. I mean, you know, literally just before we started recording, I was on the, the BBC Formula One website seeing if Red Bull were going to drop Christian Albon yet because he's not a very good driver. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I'm not keenly involved in Red Bull's operation. I, I absorb it. Um, I watch it. I'm entitled to criticise. But, you know, there are there's a global audience of 70, 70 odd million for Formula One and, and I'm mm. just a very small minority. Um, and it's you know the same with football fans it's the same with um ballet for i don't know i'm making this up now ballet fans probably come out and go oh her ronde jean was terrible yeah don't like her yeah. you know um yes. so so what the guy's saying there is absolutely it is right to be critical and to keep the production regime on their on their toes and keep them honest and of course a few carping fans didn't didn't kill the show uh, it was a strategic 
uh, bloodletting by the the BBC to get rid of it because by the time uh, that they took the decision to get rid of the show it had become an embarrassment and I say that now um, because of BritBox I'm able to rewatch all of Doctor Who in order and oh my god yes for people like Ruth Handley who wrote the original yeah. uh, all she had to point out though were the whiners that's all she could see I guess without social media you're even more sort of confined from from seeing the bigger picture I guess and so she is lashed out at the whiners and, and this chap Nigel he, he hasn't taken it so well well, it sort of links back to what we were saying at the start about you, you construct your own echo chamber with a, a sort of closed community fandom where everyone just responds to each other and people's views get more and more entrenched and obviously she was just surrounded by people criticising the show. I mean, it's it's funny because at the time I would have been quite critical of the McCoy era myself as a mm-hmm. 13-year-old who was on the verge of becoming interested in girls. And, you know, I could sense that the show wasn't all that it could be. I think during sort of the, the first couple of episodes of Time and the Rani, I was distinctly uncomfortable. But now, if, I, if someone came, if someone burst into this room now and put a gun to my head um, and tried to steal the milk back, uh, I'd be furious. <laughs> And they said, you have to watch a classic Doctor Who. I'd be like, well, that's a, a weird threat. That is kind of my hobby. Um, <laughs> but I would totally go for a Sylvester um, because that that's my era. That was the best stuff. Um, yeah. But it, it's, it's, you know, it's cyclical and opinions come and go. And probably, I don't know, at some point there'll be an anti-Tom Baker backlash and people will spend 10 years going, well, he was terrible, wasn't he? Oh, it's just... <laughs> goggly eyes and leering at the camera oh nonsense you know i yeah i i don't i don't really know enough about the about the sort of situation that led to this particular uh, epistolatory exchange between these two <laughs> fellows well the lady and this gentleman to to comment on it but yeah you know that's fair and look that was three of the best from september 1991 did you enjoy running through those topics I did because it made me recall the golden days of September 1991 when Guns N' Roses released not one but two Use Your Illusion albums. That's another thing I would have been doing instead of oh, reading new right? adventures. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I did I did both. I did both. If you've ever if you've ever sort of listened to November Rain whilst reading about Enkidu and Gilgamesh, you'll you'll, you know, you'll know exactly whereof I speak. <laughs> Lovely. Well, we'll certainly have to have you back on the show uh, in a later episode to talk through uh, some more interesting mail to DWM. I'd love to. I'd love to. Lovely. Well, we'll see you next time, Ian. Thank you. Take care, everyone. 